Thank you so much for joining us here at Re-Encounters. Before this episode begins, it's important to say that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It is also going to contain spoilers. So if you care about being surprised the first time you watch the source material of what we're talking about in this episode, then don't listen just yet. Go and watch or listen to it, take it in and come on back when you're ready. If you're like me and don't care about spoilers, then feel free to keep on listening. But don't say that we didn't warn you. All that being said, let's get started. Well, hello! Hello there to you too, Sam. And to all of our lovely listeners as well. Yes, indeed. It does feel nice to be uh, back. I uh, hope you're feeling well rested. I am. I hope that your summer has been adventurous. And even if not, I hope that you have managed to recover your energy levels because you're going to need some high energy levels for this upcoming trip we're going to put you through. But more <laughs> on that in a bit. We've had a month away to recharge our batteries. Um, and, you know, those two podcast episodes that we did really took a toll on us and we needed to, yeah, bask in the sun. Also, sometimes the rain, I guess, because we need watering. It's been a nice rest. Oh, definitely. Um, and um, we're back on the podcast journey. Whoop, whoop. Uh, with our third episode, which is incredible. Yes, definitely. I believe that that is a very good beginning and an interesting way to segue into the next film, which we're going to be watching, which... How do I begin to describe this film? Uh, well, first of all, let's maybe hint at the fact as to who is the one re-experiencing this film for the second or third time and who is watching it for the first time with fresh eyes. Yeah, we've got a bit of a surprise for you this week because those of you who will have listened to our introductory episode, which was a short five minute episode, that explains the fact that this came out of an idea of me introducing pieces of media to Boris. However, it was always our intention that we would do the same the other way around and watch films that neither of us have seen and films that both of us have seen before um, and indeed engage in other pieces of art as well in all of the various ways that we could. But this time, it's the first one that I have not seen before. <gasps> Shock horror. Um, um, what you said about the conception of this podcast and it being a combination and accumulation of our own individual cultural touchstones or even cultural standpoints is a big factor in this. And of course, there was always going to come a point where we would be introducing each other and not just you introducing me to pieces of media which I haven't seen. Of course, this is going to be a mutual process. And I believe that every single individual person brings a singular individual personal standpoint on whatever art is discussed, whatever art is in question. And this is why we encourage you every single episode to get in touch with us, to share your comments, to share your opinions with us regarding the film or the piece of media or art which we are experiencing for our next episode, or even to as we said in the introductory episode, maybe give you some sort of inspiration in order to give a piece of media which may have been on your list to read, watch, listen to, experience, see a bit more of a push or maybe a second chance to something which, you know, you may have experienced once before, but you haven't in a while. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm repeating myself again from the first episode, but it's good. 
gives a bit of a circular fashion that way. Yeah, things need to be repeated. And I think that part of the point is that good art, bad art, obscure art, popular art, whatever it is, it's all, if it's art, as far as I'm concerned, then it has the capacity to start a conversation and to make people talk about what they've seen, what they've mm. experienced, and talk about that with other people. You know, we're talking today about a piece of media, a, a film, that I think Boris had to work relatively hard to find a film that I hadn't seen. Not uh, to mention a film from, you know, it's not the recent, recent past, but it's a bit far away enough so that Sam could have experienced it if he had really gone out of his way to do so. Yes, and in this case, I didn't. Which, but that's okay. Yeah, which is fine. I, I remember have. the film being advertised, and one of the mm. points that we've we've talked about because we, we have watched it now, the poster is really excellent. Like, the main poster and the one that you will see, for instance, on the Wikipedia article about this film, it, it shows a kind of film. It drills down into the kind of film that it is. Yes. But there are other hints. <laughs> um, shall, we, shall we tell them? Should we put them out for I think, yeah, I think we should just tell them the title. And the film itself is called Drag, Drag Me, Me to, to Hell. Hell. Yes, it's the 2009... Horror, horror question comedy? mark film? Yeah. Let, let's get this out of the way. It is meant to be a horror comedy. It was billed as a horror film mainly, but I believe that the, the director and the creative team behind it realized its comedic potential, wrote it in a comedic fashion, and maybe subsequently billed it as well as a horror slash comedy film, crossing both genres because those two genres specifically have a lot in common and they're not strangers to each other. I, th I think it's important to note the horror comedy nature of it, mm. which some people might easily miss completely without, like, before seeing it, they might miss it. Yeah. And indeed, some people, indeed from reading reviews of the film, seem to have missed the comedic aspect. If you ignore the comedy, then you're not going to get the same experience out of this film. If you're the kind of person who watches your horror films not to laugh, then this is not the one for you. There are quite a few moments in this where if you're not laughing along, you will just have to make your brain jump to so many conclusions or even through so many hoops in order to justify the actions. Yeah. And something you're just saying about the combination of the two genres made me remember about Scream and then Scary Movie as a sort of a parody of Scream and other horror films. And yet Scream itself as a horror film, working on the same levels as Scary Movie does. Yeah, I mean... They're uh, both kind of parodies. The thing about it is that horror slash thriller, slash even aspects of sci-fi, particularly the more horror aspect, uh, horror end of sci-fi, it's so easy to make fun of because it's so stylized. There's a lot of tropes you keep coming back to. There's lots of cliches. Yes. Um, and... Some films really buy into them and treat them really seriously. <laughs> um, and of course, they, they have changed slightly over time. The more modern films, Ari Aster's films, for instance, mm. which, which are horror films, um, as well as being thrillers and, and kind of shock factor films. Stuff Hereditary. Midsommar. Um, Midsommar. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the, the conventions of the horror genre change over time, and they always have. Mm. Um, it's also a much older genre than a lot of people think, uh, because, you know... Human beings and their desires to be scared and to, to like, have gross-out stuff. There is an urge to see blood. 
blood and guts and gore, some people don't like it, and yet a lot of other people do. You know, the Saw films wouldn't have been as popular as they were. Completely. Films like The Thing, you know. But because it's so full of cliches and stereotypes, it's mm-hmm. really easy to make fun of. You're also able to make it funny within the context of the actual film that you're making, even if it's a horror film. Mm. And thus mm-hmm. we get films like Drag Me to Hell, yes. which are a definite combination of horror and comedy. Absolutely. And, you know, whilst you're seeing all that about the horror films, the tropes, the stereotypes, and the challenging of those stereotypes in recent years by some other films, several thoughts came into my head. Firstly, in combination with Ari Aster's cinematic films and attempts to redefine the horror genre, I think we need to talk about, to correct me if I'm wrong, Jordan Peele and yeah. the, Get Out, the Get Out film and other Jordan Peele cinematic experiences. I agree. I agree. Because those definitely flip a lot of, a lot of perpetuated stereotypes yeah. for a lot of the time. They try to help us think about a different perspective as to our actions and how they may affect other people around us. Mm. Secondly, you were saying something about the desire to see blood, the desire to see gore, and you said that Saul is a great example of that. Well, they were really popular. Oh, completely. No, I don't disagree with you. And look at uh, the popularities of amusement parks. And think about amusement parks as a sort of a version of that. Yeah, thrill-seeking. Completely. Yeah. And further on from that, I think it's um, important to state the value of moral tales or or morality tales. To what extent could horror films be seen as a way to instill a certain set of morals by showcasing consequences of one's actions when they do something inherently wrong or ethically wrong as understood from a specific standpoint? Because ethics and morals are always charged with specific backgrounds and information, whether they come from a religious background, if they do from which religion, whether they come from a different societal, community background. So in the case of Drag Me to Hell, you could also see it as a morality tale showcasing the consequences of one's actions. I agree with you. I, I think that in, a, in the case of a lot of horror films, the expectation and kind of the need from the scriptwriter's perspective is to keep the story simple. And one mm-hmm. of the easiest ways of doing that is to introduce a pretty by-the-numbers moral code. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time, the characters that suffer most are the ones who do worse stuff. Or make bad decisions. In the situation, you know, your protagonist is usually someone who's quite flawed. But they also, it does have to be said, usually don't have enough flaws to make them the person who will be the, the one who, who any, any of the ones who die. But... I think the way that a lot of less than good scriptwriters have treated it hmm. in the horror genre is, oh, well, this person is flawed, but we, we can't make them too flawed because we've only got a certain amount of time. We've got to make this person like seem as good as uh, the best of the bunch. They've got to be the best of the bunch. They make them really quite kind of dull because there's nothing about them to, to make them kind of interesting. They don't have much in the way of human connection. In order to bring this all back together and maybe as a way to start us off thinking about Dragon to Hell, I just want to go back to what you said about, firstly, the stereotypical depictions of characters and of different people within the horror genre, together with the main protagonist being depicted as the best person of a bunch of people around them. With these two ideas, you get the possibility of stigmatizing and alienating a large chunk of society and the population if you're showcasing 
not the supremacy, but the prevalence of, let's say, a white male or a white female protagonist over a BIPOC person who is within the cast but gets killed off first or in order for the main protagonist to survive. It's one of the main cliches, you know. Exactly, and this is where we can go back to Get Out and further Jordan Peele-related films because those are advancements within the horror genre from the last seven to eight years tops. They are, but they're built on a bedrock of films that were challenging the genre from beforehand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it is a cliche to say of older horror films, oh yeah, the black guy's going to die first. You know, it is, it is, it is something that does fit with a lot of films. Yeah. And Um, that was why I wanted to also go back to this and sort of uh, say that Dragon to Hell does base itself on those stereotypes, does perpetuate them to a certain extent, but from today's perspectives, we can reassess that critically and just laugh at the failure of this film as a horror piece of art, I guess. Well, I, yeah, okay. So, not to beat around too many bushes, I don't think that our interpretation of this film and our, our enjoyment of this film, I don't think our opinions are very favourable overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, obviously, Whatever we'll, gave you that impression. <laughs> I, think, I think we'll come back to that later. We definitely will. But the best place to start is with my expectations for the film. I think, yes, seeing as Um, you're the person who hadn't seen it before. Yeah, I hadn't seen this film, but I had seen a lot of the work of Sam Raimi. Who was the director. director. Uh, Yeah, Sam Raimi is... He's he's quite experienced at this point. He started out as an indie filmmaker, and I've seen the first two of the Evil Dead films. Ooh. um, Along with Army of Darkness, which is technically either the third or fourth Evil Dead film. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, Sam Raimi is a filmmaker who I greatly respect. He started in the indie scene, and his mission, it would seem, has always been to both include and challenge the stereotypes of the film of the film genres that he's making. Mm, okay. Um, he loves to maximize all of the stereotypes of the genre that he's exaggerations with. galore. Yeah. He's, he's quite hammy. I mean, apart from The Evil Dead, the most famous examples of his work are probably the um, original trilogy of Spider-Man films. It was seemingly after these films that Sam Raimi did Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, because but... 2002, 2004, 2007 on the Spider-Man films, 2009 Drag Me to Hell. Well, back to your expectations. Yes. Um, so I knew that like in those films, it would be a bit hammy. I knew that he would play up on a lot of the stereotypes of the horror genre. And indeed, you know, indie horror is where he began. Um, So it kind of makes sense. I thought that there would be good practical effects in it because he's also known for that. Although knowing the the date when it was released, I did also expect some possibly less than good CG work. Mm -hmm. I expected that it would, as I say, that it would maximise a lot of the stereotypes, but it would also do some work challenging them. And... I, I was also expecting uh, an interesting central protagonist who challenged a few of the stereotypes. I was expecting a short runtime, which I got, and I was expecting a, a story that was interesting. I was expecting mm. a story that w- presented something a little bit different in relation to the uh, the horror genre. But I expected a lot of the stereotypes, a, a lot of the cliches. I didn't expect to enjoy it massively because as we will find out later i'm not that much into horror films Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but 
I, I did think that there might be a couple of scares as well. I expected it not to be by the numbers. I expected mm-hmm. there to be some complexity, something a bit deeper about it. And I okay. thought that it would have, um, that I would be interested, that I would want to keep watching for more than just morbid curiosity. Um, that is a damning review of the film already. <laughs> yeah, don't read too much into it yet. Well, building on from those expectations that you had coming into the film, I actually think those cover some of the ones that I had for you as someone returning to the experience of a Sam Raimi horror film. Mm. I was thinking about the fact that you would be probably slightly confused about the plot and the supernatural elements. Mm. You don't get a Sam Raimi horror without supernatural elements. No, you don't. That's true. Okay, there we go. But yes, I believe that you'll be confused about the plot and the supernatural elements, finding them slightly illogical and nonsensical. Mm-hmm. I also knew you would note the campy nature of the acting. Yeah, I, I, I was expecting it up to a point. Good, good. And I think that was what made it a bit more palatable to you and acceptable to you, because I do know you're not a fan of horror, and that's why I expected you to find the film itself a bit too scary at times, even. Because it has been a fair while since I've last seen it, and I didn't really quite remember you, everything. You didn't remember the lack of scares then? <laughs> to be completely frank, I first and only saw this when I was about 12. Oh, right, okay. So around the time when it was released. 12 to 15, yeah. I thought you'd make a note on the lighting itself and how dark the film is. Right, okay. And not and the darkness doesn't really just relate to the themes of the film but also to the lighting of the film itself i mean that would be that would be such a simple thing if it was like oh it's dark because the film is dark i mean (laughs) although some more behind the scenes uh secrets here we first started watching this on a phone and i seem to remember within the first five minutes sam had to readjust the brightness of his phone because it was so dark well that could be a note about my phone brightness being too low but you know (laughs) I, I don't know. Saving energy. Yeah. Not for this film. Not for this film. Not for this film. <laughs> um, I thought, together with the campy nature of the acting, that you would find the acting terrible, probably deplorable, and that you would inevitably compare this Sam Raimi piece of art to his other works and the Spider-Man films. Well, yeah, the comparisons are easy. For instance, there's a bit of a joke uh, that Sam Raimi... But he puts the same screaming face of a woman into every film that he makes. <laughs> she has to make the, the Sam Raimi scream face. It's easily seen to be a Sam Raimi film. The only thing about it which I think makes it unlike a Sam Raimi film is just how disappointing it is. Ooh. Ooh. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. Wow. This is another aspect of this podcast which is so important and enlightening be introduced to a slightly disappointing films but be slightly disappointing films from directors who you thought had a pretty spectacular oeuvre 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 yeah and i think those slight mistakes but also those funny moments can lead us on to our next section yeah namely describing the film in five words and i think for this i will let you take center stage first yeah, well, mine's kind of like, well, apparently that just happened, which was my reaction directly after finishing the film. 
Um, okay. Because, <laughs> like, you know you watch some films occasionally and it just feels like it was a blip in your life that didn't act... Like, maybe it was a dream or it was... it was a, you, you blacked out or something. A very bad dream, question mark? I mean, I... I've had nightmares that were way more scary than this. Nightmares that I knew were nightmares that were way more scary. That speaks loads for your imagination there, love. Well, you know, great. Maybe I have a lot of stuff that's causing me to have personal demons. I don't know. But I think that it also speaks volume, volumes about the fact that this film is not very scary. <laughs> for a horror film, it ain't scary. I'm sorry. The fact that you watched it when you were 12 shows that it's not very scary. I mean, I know that there are loads of kids younger than that who are watching horror films that they probably shouldn't be I watching. I definitely watched Scream and Scary Movie yeah, when I was like seven. That's not, that's nothing abnormal. Yeah. But there are kids out there at age 10 to 12 who find the Daleks scary in Doctor Who. <laughs> like, I, I don't like horror films. I don't like jump scares. I don't like being scared by things. But, but I just didn't find anything in this film scary. <laughs> and you guys thought I would have the hot takes last time with Finding this Nemo. This is not a hot... Well, it is a bit of a hot take because <laughs> of... Because of Sam Raimi. Some of the... Well, no, because of how people have reacted to this film over time. And mm. at the time. But we'll, we'll, get, we'll, get, we'll, there, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Great. Amazing. I mean, that just happened indeed. I mean, moving on from there... What else can I say but my five words to summarize this film? Well, I think I think that's the point. It would be kind of odd if it was just my five words. Yeah, I know, right? So this... I'll just I'll just keep on. I'll just do it. Yeah, keep going, keep going. I'll just keep going. going. So my five words for this um, cinematic experience are campy, special effects induced hilarity. I feel like there should be like a an asterisk, a disclaimer, a footnote, a disclaimer next to that one. That's like what this actually means. <laughs> campy. Badly done special effects induced slight hilarity <laughs> for the wrong reasons. It's funny for the wrong reasons. It wasn't slight. That hilarity was not slight. It definitely doesn't want to make you, or maybe it does, and maybe that's the purpose of the episode, make you want to go watch it or find it or oh, please learn more about it. Please watch it <clears throat> because it's good to watch bad things occasionally. Yes, Sam, you have a point. And what better time for you, listener, to go onto Google or Wikipedia than right now? Is this you trying to tell everyone that we're taking a short break? Very subtle indeed, Boris. Well, we do have to be clear about when they can pause for a tea or a salad, don't we? <laughs> yes, let them eat salad. I think this is also about how we personally perceive works of art. Mm. But in this case, yeah, completely. But in this case, I will admit that it's a generally piss poor performance all around. Yeah, not just from Sam Raimi. Yeah, it's not great. Should, should we tell them? I, you've had to do the um, the plot summaries for the last two because you've not seen them. Yes. Um, but I guess it's my turn. This yeah. Time. Um, and the film begins as you might expect with a relatively stereotypical flashback mm -hmm. uh, to the summer of love. It's back to 1969. Uh, we are in, I believe, California. Yes, um, we're in Pasadena, California. Yeah. The, there's some parents who are, who they, they go to a, it's a random big building. Anyway, there's a woman there who's a kind of uh, Christian, a of a Christian coded mystic. And these parents are taking their child there to seek help for a curse. 
there's this dark spirit that has been put on him by a, a traveling community, a Ro yes. Roma, Romani uh, traveling community. Yeah, precisely traveling community because the kid stole uh, the necklace. Stolen necklace. Yeah, the kid. The kid's shown to have stolen the necklace, and there's a big shot on this necklace as if it's going to be an, an important plot point. It's not. Um, spoiler alert! Spoiler it's, alert not. It's, it's not. Um, it's simply an object. The the young at this point young lady who is a, a Christian um, mystic. mystic uh, she takes the child in and does some ministration. She works out that there's this dark spirit. I don't think it's named at this point. She does some stuff. She thinks she can beat the spirit, but oh no, the child is dragged to hell. Cue title sequence with some relatively cool music. Mm. Um, the music is all over the place in this film, but uh, the title music is really quite good. Yes. I like it. So good title sequence. We skip to the modern day of late 2000s. Uh, I think about 2007. Yeah, we're still in California, I think. Yes. Yeah. Despite the fact that it feels occasionally like Canada, this is California. It's still California, <laughs> even though it looks very cold. Yes, so if it feels a bit like Canada at points to me. But, but it is are. actually Los Angeles. Yeah, well, we're told that. Anyway, Christine, who's our main character, is a... Um, a Christine Brown, I think is her name. Uh, she is a, a bank loan officer... Yes, person precisely. Who, who gives out loans from the bank. And she wants to be the assistant manager because there's an assistant manager job that has come up. And she is in line for it. Uh, the other person who's in line for it is a relatively new employee who she's mm -hmm. been helping to train. But also kind um, of competing against, I guess. Yeah. She's told by her boss that she needs to be a tougher when she is doing the work. And she needs to say no to more people because she's so sweet and she apparently says yes to everyone. <laughs> she's um, so nice. Immediately, we get introduced to an elderly lady with some nasty fingernails called Sylvia Ganush. Mm -hmm. um, and she has this weird eye. Uh, she keeps making weird snuffling noises. She keeps taking off her dentures and yeah, putting them back dentures. in. It's, it's, you know, she's coded to be this disgusting character. We're also kind of uh, introduced to the fact that she's from a uh, Romani traveling community. Yes, indeed. Um, and she asks for a her loan to be uh, extended for True. a third time, we True. discover, uh, to avoid her house being repossessed. Correct. Um, of course, Christine, aware that she needs to be tougher, says no after talking to her boss. And, you know, it's he says it's her call. So she makes the decision to say no. And the old lady, initially, she she she's disappointed that she, she makes to leave. But then she gets down and starts begging Christine. And Christine does something. Um, she screams and tries to take her leg away from Sylvia because Sylvia is holding onto her leg, begging yes. her to extend the loan. And then Christine brings even more attention to the scene which is occurring right yeah. now, calling for security, making other people stare at Sylvia. And that is when Sylvia Ganesh yeah. says to Christine, You have shamed me. You have shamed me. Yeah, she says, you have shamed me. She attacks Christine in the bank in front of everyone, then gets escorted out. Mm -hmm. Then when Christine is leaving, uh, she sees a weird car um, before getting into her own car. And then, like, out of nowhere, Sylvia Ganesh is in her back seat and they go through this whole long fight. Um, Honestly, such a oh, weird... Oh, crazy fight. Crazy, crazy Hilarious fight. fight. I get that it's intentionally funny. It's in this weird state where you don't know whether it's 
going for funny all the time, yep. or if occasionally it's going for serious. Um, it there's some stereotypical stuff going on with how she does her magic. Yeah, and she she curses one of Christine's buttons that she takes off of Christine's coat. Very important detail. Very that. important detail. And she she calls out the name of the Lamia, which is the name of a historically documented demon mm-hmm. uh, in various cultures. Indeed. There is all of this stuff. She gets cursed. Christine has to convince her boyfriend, just convince him that there's something wrong. She goes to this mystic who is of Indian extraction, this guy who, who offers her a, a reading and he tells her that there's some dark shit going on. That happens. She goes to this mystic. She knows that something's going on and there are lots of moments where she's clearly being tortured by some kind of dark spirit. She has a nasty dream where she swallows a fly and and, Sil- and Sylvia appears to her and is sick on her face and mm. throws up lots of maggots and crap on her face. That happens a few times. Yeah, there's loads of what's co- what, what's meant to be gross-out stuff in this film. There is loads of stuff that's meant to be that. It's a genre. Gross-out horror is a genre. There's a load of stuff that tries to do it here. But it just comes off as hilarious. Anyway, yep. Christine is told she goes through various instances. She oh she she tries to um, go and beg forgiveness of Sylvia Ganesh, but only goes there to discover her, uh, Sylvia Ganesh's daughter or daughter. granddaughter, Ooh. and discovers daughter. in a weirdly coded wake that Sylvia is dead. She knocks over the body. She she turns into one of the three Stooges. Yes, it's mad. Um, anyway, she, she gets go- another helping of maggots onto her face. Yeah, she gets more maggots. She gets more, like, gross stuff. She goes home, and the demon arrives and fucking flings her into various things, does some telekinesis. She goes back to the, the Indian uh, mystic and asks him for more help. He says that she needs to sacrifice an animal. She decides to kill her own cat um, and bury it in the garden because she's so desperate. Uh <laughs> This is this is a really cute cat. It's a little kitten, and she she fucking stabs it. Sorry, I'm, I I remember the line. I remember the line she uses and says in order to get the cat's attention. Here, kitty, kitty. Here, kitty, kitty. Stab, stab, stab. Blood everywhere. Um, like it's it sounds funny, and it is funny. Like it it is funny. And this and before this, she said a line that would be worthy of Tommy Wiseau in the room, where she says, "I can't kill a cat," or something like this. I work in the puppy sanctuary. And I'm a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. It's like, oh, come on. Who wrote this? We know who wrote this. Basically, none of this works. And the, the demon is still around. And the the Indian mystic suggests that they should go to a particular person who will be able to help. But he tells her that this person will need $10,000 in order to get help. So she tries to sell all of her stuff. She tries to get the money from the bank. But she's told that she probably won't get the um, promotion. promotion. So she's super sad. She tries to sell all of her stuff. Oh, after she kills the cat, she thinks that she's free and she she makes a visit to Clay's parents' house. Yes. But that goes awfully wrong when more stuff, including an eye in a cake, happens to make her look as if she's utterly insane to his parents. She then, after all of the stuff, she gets the 10,000. No, no, no. no. She, she doesn't get the 10,000. Clay, who is weirded out by everything, uh, decides to pay the 10,000 for her. So he does that. They go, guess where? To this, the big house that we saw in the flashback scene where we meet the old version of the Christian mystic lady that we met at the start. And she has spent her whole life wanting revenge on the Lamia. 
apparently only taking $10,000 to help. Uh, okay. And she does some work with her, they do a seance, and they, they plan to kill the Lamia by putting it into a goat's body and then killing the goat. This backfires horribly when the Lamia basically escapes their trap, and they just manage to banish the spirit only for the Spanish mystic lady, the Christian mystic lady, to die. Sean Sandina. Sean Sandina. Was her name. And then the Indian mystic says to her, well, you're going to need to get rid of this. You'll, you'll have to get rid of the button, which is the cursed item. And so he says to her, you need to give it to somebody else. And she considers various people that she's going to give it to, including the guy that she's in competition for the mm -hmm, job with, mm -hmm. who she threatens. And she doesn't give it to anyone. Doesn't give it to anyone alive. Yeah, she doesn't give it to anyone alive because she then has an idea. She goes back to the Indian mystic, Indian coded mystic, and says to him, can I give it back to Sylvia Ganesh? And one of the last scenes of the film is her going to the graveyard, digging mm. up Sylvia's grave. She gives back the what she thinks is the button and she she stuffs it into the dead woman's mouth and she after lots of trials and tribulations in this grave she does it she does this kind of Lara Croft moment climbs out of the grave she's triumphant she goes home she thinks she's free she goes to meet Clay at the train station the next day but then twist she discovers that she didn't actually give Sylvia back the button because she lost the button when she dropped some papers in Clay's car. She actually put a different envelope with a different thing, which happens to be an antique penny that she gave to Clay because he collects pennies. And the button, he still has it and he gives it back to her. And she, in horror, falls into the train tracks as a train is coming. But she's spared being run over by the train because some devilish hands reach out of the ground and drag her to hell. End of the film. Although I do have to say, like, the ending CG is the only CG that is any good. And, like, she has the skin, like, pull, basically pulled off her head as she mm. becomes a, a, a lost soul in, in hell. Yeah. I just want to add a very important detail, which was missing from your extremely well-detailed description of the film. Thank you very much for that. The Curse of the Lamia is a curse which takes three days. You basically have three days in order to escape the Lamia, bring over the cursed item to someone else, or get in touch with the Lamia and try to do what Christine did together with Sean Sandina and the mystic Ramjas. Yes, horrible names. These names were never used in the body of the film, or at least horrible if they were, names. I did not catch them. So, the Lamia's curse takes three days to develop, unless you transfer the item to another owner, or you manage to entrap the Lamia in the body of an animal, such as a goat, and then kill it or sacrifice it, you will be taken after those three days. Hence the short amount of time and the urgency of all of the actions taken by Christine. Mainly Christine. Now, I was going to say other people in the film, but mainly Christine. Yeah, it does have to be said, this, this bucks a, this, it does buck certain horror film trends in that it's centered entirely on the experiences of one person. Yeah. With people peripheral to her, it does have to be said. But all of the bad stuff that happens is just to her for the majority of the film. Yes. There's not a big ensemble cast. No one else really gets directly targeted by the Lamia. It's all as a result of Christine's actions and Christine's presence around them. However, what's most interesting is her boyfriend, Clay, doesn't 
come into direct contact with the Lamy, you're correct. Yeah, no, the... no one else really does. And it's this kind of invisible thing that only she can see in a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff is about it torturing her. So a yes. lot of it's kind of trickster-based stuff. Um, Ram Jass, is that his name? Yeah, the, the, supposedly. Yeah, the, that mystic guy, he tells her that a, a part of the point is that it tortures its victims before dragging them to hell. In a way, testing their resilience, I guess, and maybe testing the audience's resilience, which... Oh, my resilience was tested. I think there were about eight occasions at which I sort of looked at Boris and was like, if we weren't watching this for the podcast, I would not be watching this anymore. We were right before when we said that it's important to watch films that aren't good films for this podcast. And, you know, I encourage everyone to watch this film. But I also encourage everyone, if you want to stop watching this film or any of the films that we review and recommend to you to watch, please do. You don't have to waste your time watching something that you're not enjoying. This is why you have our account of events and of the film. <laughs> True. <laughs> suffice. I think after that beautiful description of the plot of the film and actually going into the depths of the Drag Me to Hell experience, we should talk about how this was so well received by the critics and why. Okay, get ready for the most confusing aspect of this episode. According to Rotten Tomatoes, this film still holds a 92% certified fresh. 92% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. And on Metacritic, it holds a B minus. I just don't know how it got such positive reviews on other online websites. It was also critics who recognized what they deemed was the greatness of this film, or how crazy, fun, terrifying it was. I... Some praised Sam Raimi for returning back to his horror roots, yeah. and others praised its exploration of um, psychological themes and its combination of scary and laugh-inducing moments. Some of the reviews make points that I think, within the context of 2009, make a certain amount of sense. This is a time when CG, using Spider-Man 3 as a good example. Hmm. CG, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we look back on now, and we think, God, that's bad. At the time, the computer-generated imagery that was used in this film may have been more positively received. And not all of it is CG. There are some effects here that are practical. They're clearly practical, and they're clearly ones that were made and look relatively good. The the maggots and the, the oh, other yeah. stuff that goes onto Christine's face in one of the scenes, it looks good, it looks real, it looks right. It's a combination of computer-generated and practical effects, and include, includes puppets as well. Yeah, but uh, the thing I always come back to is The Lord of the Rings. And even in the first one, there are examples of computer-generated imagery that are just mind-blowing, even in 2023. Yes. Now, I know that those films had a lot of money behind them, and Drag Me to Hell probably didn't, but my advice... Budget of $30 million. Yeah, that's not much. Even on those terms, if you're going to use CG, make sure that it's up to some good standards, because some of the stuff in this film, this is the same year that Avatar came out, Oh, is just not good. You know, Avatar is a film that we come back to, and today... I know a lot of people who say, oh, the CG isn't actually that good. But at the time, it was really amazing. Again, a very expensive film. But this is a man, Sam Raimi is a man who has proved that he can do, on a low budget, really good practical effects. And yet, in this film, he relies on some really crap computer-generated imagery. And it just takes you out of it. Mm -hmm. Even more than you're already out of it because of the terrible acting and really subpar script. script. 
And who wrote the script, if I may ask? Sam Raimi and his brother Ivan. Yes. Um, at points, this film engages in so much taking you out of the moment that there is no immersiveness no. whatsoever. No, no, So no. when you have really quite well-respected film critics saying that, uh, giving it credits and saying that a sometimes funny and often startling horror movie, it is sometimes funny and it is often startling, but not in the right way. You know, it's funny because it's bad. It's startling because you think, Really? That's what you did? And then he goes on to say, that is what it wants to be, and that is what it is. That's one of the vaguest reviews to give to a film I've ever heard. And yet he's also giving it three out of four stars. And I'm like, really? Really? It baffles the mind how some publications and some critics can be so, not disconnected, but can have such wild opinions. So there is another publication called Bloody Disgusting, which is a horror-focused movie review publication, and according to them, Drag Me to Hell is quite simply the most perfect horror film I, so the person reviewing this, have seen in a long, long while. It's a blast and moved quickly from start to finish and is well on its way to becoming an immediate classic. So much to unpack there. There have always been horror flops, okay? And I guess the 2009 climate may have not been that different and Dragon to Hell might have seemed like a bit of a fresh air in amongst an amalgamation of maybe films of the horror genre from their flop era. And yet, you have films such as Coraline. Yeah, okay, I, I was going to mention Coraline. Year. I mean, How? Coraline, Coraline is a film that, ha you know, is very difficult, like Drag Me to Hell, to pin down to a particular genre. The, the animation helps, mm. but I, it comes down to the way that it's been directed mm -hmm. and the, and the, the feeling that it that it exudes right. it creates an aura but this is also mm. a year where inglorious bastards came out Ugh. we've got up we've got princess and the frog we've got 17 again it came after one of the biggest years in film because 2008 was huge mm. um and 2009 has some notable films um i think avatar is probably the most notable from 2009 yeah. we also yeah. had shutter island which is a very mm. good thriller film it was a strange year for film. Um, and I think that within the the milieu, if I can use that word, of... We started using French now, we're fine. Yeah, within the milieu of um, the strange year of 2009 in film, Drag Me to Hell is yet another weird entry. And if it's your kind of thing, then that's fine. I think that one of the things I want to come back to is a particular review. A favourable one, but one which I think speaks volumes. It says, the film blends horror and humour so well that viewers don't know whether to laugh or scream. <laughs> now, the issue for me is that we didn't know whether to laugh or scream, quite right. But that isn't always a good thing. If you're left in this kind of limbo of not knowing how to react to a film, quite often you get completely alienated. Yeah. One of my main things is, what is the point of this film? And, yeah. you know, if people love this film, then congrats to you. But... I simply wasn't expecting mm. as much positive reinforcement as this film seems to have received. The 92% and, and the averages which say how good it is, the fact that it's received awards for being the best horror movie, you know, and this year, Raimi saying that he might be going to make a sequel. I Apparently, don't get it. There is a following for this film, supposedly. This is the kind of film that, as far as I'm concerned, it should really have been a forgotten dud. And yet it managed to 
make a box office success of yeah. $90 million, surpassing its budget of $30 million. Honestly, the alienation of this film is extraordinary. The, the tone is so weird it in crosses, this film. It crosses over into parody. It's so odd. I can't explain how odd this film is. I think the next thing we should try and explain, though, is a little bit of information about some of the main actors. Yes. Or and, wouldn't and, go amiss. And, like, some surprising cameos. Very surprising cameos. So, obviously, we talked about Sam Raimi at great length, what he's produced and what he has created thus far. So... Yeah, I think, once again, to state that Sam Raimi did have his roots in indie filmmaking, specifically horror film indie filmmakings. But we have some stars in the film, and the main star of the film... Alison Lohman. Alison Lohman, who I haven't really heard much of before this, although she has been in some films that I have seen. She's lent her voice to some films that we've seen. Most um, notably, the Studio Ghibli film, and the English dub of the Studio Ghibli film, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Um, so, that's interesting. She's now a retired actress, I believe. Uh, yeah. She's no longer working. Dragon to Hell was one of her last major roles. Yes, she's been in some interesting films. She was in Big Fish, she was in Beowulf, which wasn't the best film in the world. We also have Justin Long. Uh, he's become more famous since... Uh, he mm -hmm. was in Galaxy Quest uh, on TV briefly. He was in Herbie. Herbie Fully Loaded. Fully Loaded. Oh my um, god, with Lindsay Lohan, if I'm not mistaken? I, I think so. He's Oh, he also writes and directs, such as the film Lady of the Manor, which he writes and directs with his brother, Christian Long. Yes, he's, he's quite interesting. I think he's the son of a relatively high up philosopher. Indeed, indeed. Philosopher. Raymond James Long, yes. yes. Yeah, Justin, Justin Long's a, 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 he's a cool character. He's been around, he's been around, and he's been also in Dodgeball. Yeah, he, he has a very distinctive look. He kind of, he's got, well, it's, it's not distinctive. He's He's got the look of kind of tall, lanky boyfriend type. To me, he seemed like a nerdy Adam Driver. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a good, that's a good example. Although, I think Adam Driver can play the nerd just as well. Mm. Uh, we've got Lorna Rava, uh, or Rava, as Sylvia Ganesh. Um, she's a character actress who has appeared in a number of things. She's not that well known, but she she's definitely got a look, let's put it that way. Yes, possibly um, Dragon to Hell may be the role which she could be most recognised for. I think she's also had some TV roles. She's there, she's cool. She um, definitely has a major role, indeed. Dilip Rao, as Ra apparently apparently named Ram Jass. He was in Avatar the same year as Dragon to Hell. And he was at Inception the year afterwards as Yusuf. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. That's why he called Oh, he was from... also in a film called Murder of a Cat, which is quite kind of <laughs> telling. Um, yes, he was, he was in Avatar the same year. He's booked to be in Avatar 3, 4, and 5, and was also in Avatar... The Way of Water, playing Dr. Max Patel. Mm. Um, who else have we got? Uh, David Paymer, Reggie Lee. But the, the biggest surprise for me is uh, I missed her. I completely missed her. Completely. Octavia Spencer is in this film. Um, she may have only a few scenes where she's in the background, or she may not be doing that much, but she is there in this film with Sam Raimi. For she, no she reason. Is she is present. As is relatively traditional, uh, Sam Raimi appears in a cameo appearance, as does his younger brother Ted, and his children Emma, Henry, and Lorna. But having missed someone as Rick. iconic 
as Octavia Spencer whilst watching the film. I feel personally ashamed. Um, That's okay. We can definitely get into other aspects of the film and even other aspects of our own imagination with one of my favorite segments, mm. namely potential replacements or alternatives. Okay. Some of them will take some explaining. I'm going to say just before any of this, when the film started and I saw Alison Lohman's face, I, I didn't think that it was Alison Lohman. I thought that it was Anna Paquin. Mm, um, okay. Of X-Men fame and various oh, other right. um, roles. If you look at their faces, I think that they are really quite similar. And I wanted it to be Anna Paquin. <laughs> and yeah, I thought it was her. I didn't think it was Alison Lohman. But, but yeah, that's one of my alternative castings. Just based on exterior, I will lend you my further ideas of Rosamund Pike. Mm-hmm. Because Alison Lohman to me looks like a reject Rosamund Pike. Okay, yeah, okay. Okay, a B maybe, version Rosamund maybe. Pike. I can see that. Mm. Or, and for all you Gleeks out there, you will get this immediately Diana Agron. You may need some photographs. I personally do, because if you want to have a, a, a nice uh, bit of trivia or something that I haven't seen, I have not seen Glee all the way through. I am not a very good gay man. I have failed. Because I never watched Glee all the way through, and I have no real interest in doing so. That's okay. Um, I don't think that they look particularly similar. This hmm. is this is the, she played Debbie. Oh no, no, she played Quinn. Oh, in... Quinn, Quinn, Quinn. It's not the best in terms of a, a physical uh, resemblance for me. However, based on who I think could have been a replacement, but also lent herself as a female protagonist, given some more comedic acting chops. Some of my ideas as replacements would be Christina Applegate. I can see that. Or, and hear me out on this, Nina Dobrev of the Vampire Diaries fame. Right. So, my story, this is going on to another segment, which is how did you come across this film, but I guess I'll just say it now. I was obsessed with the Vampire Diaries when they started coming out. I was obsessed with the books to begin with, and I even managed to read up until book six or seven. And then when the series started coming out in around 2010, I remember there was a special moment around season one of The Vampire Diaries when I had to stay at home because I was suffering from such severe headaches that I ended up needing to have glasses. And I was recovering from those headaches and getting used to just wearing glasses that I was watching a lot of The Vampire Diaries and a lot of CW shows and that sort of aura I want to say, of teen CW shows that I then stumbled across Drag Me to Hell. That was the way I first came across it, saw it, thought, this is a hilarious camp mess, and thought about how Nina Dobrev in Vampire Diaries was giving a sort of a dramatic teenage performance, but was also having fun with it, which is why I could possibly see her having the main role of Christine in Drag Me to Hell. Right. Okay. Interesting. We'll, yeah. come, we'll come back to that a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyone else you want to give a recast for? Yes, I believe if you want to cast someone else as boring old... Not boring old, but like boring white male boyfriend, instead of Justin Long, I was thinking about... You know, it was the same year as Scott Pilgrim, but Michael Sarah could have done that. Or even Jesse Eisenberg before The Social Network. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with your recast. Both of them actually could have lent themselves to the lecturer, professor, academic role 
coming from money, coming from a Republican background. I think Michael Sarah would have sold it very differently um, yeah. to how it's sold in the film. But at least he would have added some personality. Definitely. Although I, I do think that Justin Long is capable of adding personality. Oh, yeah. I think the main issue for everyone is the script. Absolutely. <laughs> which Absolutely. is not very good. And that leads me into... I know you've got another recast, which we'll, we'll come back to, but yep. it, it leads me into a point which I'm going to make about my recast, particularly for Christine. Yeah. I think this is the ideal role. If the script were basically to be only updated in terms of stuff to make it seem more modern, this is the ideal role for someone making the transition from modelling to uh, acting. Definitely. You know, there are people like Gigi Hadid. Um, I, I know she's been in a bit of hot water recently, but yeah. um, I, I think that someone like her could do it fine because this is the kind of role that you're just going to be able to do fine. There isn't really a better than fine for this film. Throwing a bit of a wrench or a spanner into the works here, what about updating it to include a drag persona in the main role? Giving someone who is known as a drag personality that sort of jump. That isn't so. I wouldn't put someone in drag in the main role. Mm -hmm. I would put some, if I was going to put a drag queen in there, I'd make them the mystic. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Um, and I'm going to let you recast the mystic first <laughs> before saying which drag queen I would, would put in that role. Right. About the mystic, guys, I really want to get away from the stereotype of casting non white actors into the roles of non-white helpers to the male protagonist or the white protagonist, in this case, a white female protagonist, because it is tired, it is done, we don't need it in a post-Jordan Peele world, can we not? So, this is why, and I know this is going to be completely out there and completely stupid and dumb, but I don't care. My recast for the mystic would be either Patrick Swayze or Tony Goldwyn, mm. And this is purely and utterly singularly based on the fact that they were both in Ghost. <laughs> I mean, I have nothing else to back this up with. Yeah, Patrick Swayze died in 2009. So it could have been a, you know, last Swan role song. for him. Tony Goldwyn. Really? I mean, I can see it. This is purely it. based on Ghost. I can see it. But like, wow. A recast that would be fun for me from the perspective of, of the uh, the mystic would be an old magician. Oh, so casting one of um, Penn and Teller mm. as as the the mystic that would be fun for okay. me. Okay. Um, but if we were going for a drag queen with universal American rec recognition, yeah, I I think it would have to be someone who's been on Drag Race, or it could be Rue. She's too old for those roles. No, I don't think she is. Can you? I I like the idea of RuPaul standing in a room going, "You are banished, demon." I mean, she would ham it up to the extent like. But that's what you need for this role. Yeah, if it wasn't Ru, I would mm. go with. If it was today, and we were trying to get away from certain racial stereotypes representations, yes. Mm. And you're already pushing boundaries with casting a drag queen. Yeah. I think it would be someone like Monet Exchange. Okay. Um, okay. Or Bob, the drag queen. Yeah, okay. Because um, okay. I think they could sell a lot of the like... And Molly, you're a danger girl. I'm, I hesitate to suggest people like Bianca Del Rio. Because it needs to be of a certain... The person needs to be of a certain age, needs to be of a certain recognition. Yeah. 
Maybe Trixie, why not? Put some mad makeup on a on a doll and be like, you're gonna die. Um, it's the Lamia, here's some horns. Um, kill a cat. The Lamia is actually Katya <laughs> with some horns. If it, if it was Katya, Katya would enjoy it. Actually, Katya would enjoy Katya, it. Katya takes human teeth and does like uh, predictions of yeah. people's deaths. Yeah. Make it Katya, let's cast Katya. In terms of a recast for Clay, mm. I mean, you've made it in your notes, he's really boring. So I can't think of anyone, I literally can't think of anyone wow. that I would do the recast for mm. now. Interesting, okay. Because I'm not au fait with too many young American actors right now. Mm. And also, why, why does it have to be a man? True. We could have them being in like a successful lesbian relationship. Indeed, indeed. Oh, there is someone who could do it. So my suggestion for someone who could play Clay would be Jack Quaid. He's largely a comedic actor. Um, he's best known right now for being in Star Trek Lower Decks. He was in The Hunger Games. Mm. He's been in The Boys. Um, ah, okay, that'll bring him some... Yeah, so he's got lots of recognition. He's, he's fun, and he's got a similar look to Justin Long. Actually, yeah. He looks a bit like a, a rich boy. Wait, in fact, Meg Ryan is his mother? Yeah, Meg Ryan is his mother, wow. and Dennis Quaid is his father. He's got the genetics. Background. He looks rich, um, and I think that's one of the main things. He lo he looks like a rich white boy who can have a slightly down on her luck girlfriend. Uh, which, if we're recasting exactly the same for the film, just in a modern context, yeah. So that's that's my take on the recasting. Um, excellent. You know what else is excellent? A lovely cup of tea that goes great after a salad. Also, your inner and outer Brit is showing the salad again. You best be careful or I'll vomit some maggots into it. Ugh, um, sounds like you need a break there, love. Take five or ten and then we'll be right back. Yeah, We got into some brilliant. stuff about Drag Race, which I think leads on to one of the times when we see this film most often <laughs> in passing. Um, you say in passing, I think, well, not every week, but quite often. Boris is very good at finding websites where we can watch things and we don't have to pay for them. Um, but do you, this concept is still a bit foreign as a British person. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> we do it in Britain too. It's just, I'm it's not. It's called Britbox <laughs> slash iPlayer. No, you have to pay for those. <laughs> um, so you type in the word drag, and a lot of times the first thing that comes up is not Drag Race, it's Drag Me to Hell. Because the 2009 it's still so film. popular. Well, yeah, but. To some people. This this shows you what we spend a lot of our time doing, watching Drag Race, but... Well, I can definitely tell you that I didn't pay attention to Drag Race the first time I was looking up this film. When I was searching for this film back in 2012, I was not thinking about Drag Race, I can tell you that much. What, you were thinking about a less, a, a less I was than average horror film? Yes. You were like, oh, I'm ready for some, sit some shit CGI. My preparation from the, the Vampire Diaries will serve me well. <laughs> The Vampire Diaries did not have great CGI all the time. It doesn't have no. to be said. No! Um, <laughs> it was a CW show. What did you expect? They kept Supernatural going for however many seasons, and they had so many spin-offs of the Vampire Diaries as it well. They some, still have one. It had some hot shots of some semi-naked men. As part of that, that kind oh, of yeah. explains something to do with you watching it. And, you know, how you've avoided it. Yeah, that's how I've avoided it. But in terms of, like, watching this film, you watched this film first in Bulgaria. Yeah, definitely. Did you watch it in English? I watched it in English, yeah. And at that point, were you watching with Bulgarian subtitles? No, there yeah. was no uh, possibility for me to watch with Bulgarian subtitles. So I just had to 
have my brain work out all of the double entendres or all of the meanings and all the possible campy tones to the film by itself. Yeah. Did, did, its do you remember enjoying it? Yes. Okay. Yes. This is precisely why I wanted to show it to you because I did remember enjoying it for all the wrong slash right reasons. I see. So, <laughs> you know, it's been quite a while since you last saw it then. Oh, completely. Okay. Definitely. Like 10 years. I'm, I'm just really interested in... Mm how you'd say your perception perception of the film changed over time. Do you okay. think that, like, your mm. age has defined a lot of the things that you found wrong with it this time? Was it watching it with me at all that shifted your perspective? Um, so as someone who usually experiences films or used to experience films by himself without really talking about them at length with other people or with company, having someone to watch their reactions is just entertaining it's a part of the entertainment factor and especially with a film which invites you to laugh to rethink what could be classified as a horror film just brings even a bigger smile to my face like i think back when i watched it the first time around ten, about 10 years ago i was maybe slightly scared by some of the maggots and by some of the shots but i still found it slightly hilarious now i find it or i found it laugh out loud funny because I've had so much more training in the genre of camp. Not necessarily camp horror, but just the over-the-top exaggeration of specific aspects of filmmaking, whether that be the script, the cinematography, the stakes, the effects. These 10 years, from watching the film the first time and watching it now, have really helped shape me into a camp-loving gay person. So... Skipping ahead a little bit, I know that you're not particularly big on a lot of the aspects of this film. True. Do you think there's an aspect of having watched it with me, and, you know, I'm quite definite in my opinions. I try to hold back, but I am very quick to judge things yeah. in terms of art. Um, do you think watching that with me affects the way that you view something? Definitely, because I value discussion. I value communication as one of my top three things in life. So watching something and then discussing it with someone right then and there, or even after the fact, really helps me to form my own opinion and it helps me to bounce off things which I may agree with, I may disagree with, but I enjoy the communal feeling of discussion. But you don't find that it's kind of artificially affecting you and making you dislike it? I don't believe so. Okay. I believe I would have had a similar reaction, maybe not the complete same, or exactly the same reaction, if I were watching it alone. That's interesting from my perspective, because film is a communal experience, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. A lot of artistic experiences, um, theatre, film, etc., TV even, they're mm -hmm. meant to be people watching and enjoying and experiencing things together. And that kind of gets me to thinking about how that affects you and affects me. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, me watching this with you, particularly with making notes and thinking about what we're going to talk about in the podcast, it's, it's always an interesting experience watching something from that perspective. We do have the capacity to agree sometimes when maybe we don't. I don't know if that makes not, any sense. Yeah, I understand. But for our, for our opinions to converge more. It's not exactly compromising, but it's going to this in the same direction to the same conclusions one way or another yeah so it's it's just good to check in from time to time definitely um uh, with regard to me 
and with regard to why I haven't seen this film, I mentioned earlier I'm not a big fan of horror. I never have been. Um, and that is okay. We yeah. accept you. <laughs> um, so yes, that's something that can affect my view of horror films and of films that engage in horror tropes. I do find horror tropes super interesting and mm-hmm. super useful. Yeah. And I do appreciate parody of yes. them. And there are horror films I've enjoyed, but I'm Ooh. not the biggest fan of the genre. I think that it can be overly stereotypical. I think that if you're going to find stereotypes in a particular film, you're usually going to find them in a horror film. I also, I, I tend not to enjoy them as much as I do other films. I like thrillers. I don't like horror film. That said, there are horror films I've enjoyed and I certainly appreciate the genre, but I do tend to avoid them. It's similar to choosing what you want to put on the wall of your flat or the wall of your home. It is art which you want to enjoy. Yeah, and you don't necessarily always consciously acknowledge why. I know, for instance, that my dad never enjoyed going to the cinema. Okay, So if we were going to the cinema, I would go with my Mm mum and I would go with my grandmother or, you know, it was very rarely my dad. Therefore, often it was films that I would be going to see with my mum or with my grandmother. And both of them also didn't like horror films. (laughs) Mum in particular doesn't like horror films. There are lots of films to choose from and we can't see them all. So things like unconscious bias, things like, you know, our preferences, whether we acknowledge why they're there or not come into play and Mm -hmm. you know it's important to acknowledge that you know there are some films that i am less likely to have seen precisely um similar to me so we're making up for lost time yeah it's it's one of those films which fell between the cracks and in this case i'm kind of glad that it did (laughs) partly because we've been able to watch it together precisely glad that the first time i've seen it was with you so i think moving on from discussing how we managed to see this film in the first place, or how I did, and how he managed to avoid it for so long. I think this is the best place to just continue talking about our opinions and thoughts on the film. Would you like to start? So, prefacing this with the fact that Christine Brown is one of the worst protagonists in film history. No doubt about that. There is... She is bland, bland, blander than a cracker. She is so dull that she has elocution lessons playing on a cassette in her car. Oh my god, she's so... Oh. Even if Alison Lohman was the best actress in the world, there isn't very much that could be done with this character. I get it, because the Raimis are obviously setting up her up as, like, this traditional horror protag who's got nothing about her. But they take it too but far. But that's bad. But that's bad. The way they're doing it is just... Bad. Yeah, because they take it too far. She is too uninteresting. Yes. Precisely. We have no interest in this character. We want to stop watching pretty much immediately because she's so dull. Yeah, I mean, okay, she's a shy female protagonist with a desire to move up in the world, or at least move up within her professional world. But she doesn't even achieve that straight away because she has to go against her morals and refuse Sylvia Garnish a third loan for reasons. And yet she's very quick to keep giving up on all of her morals through the whole film. Yes. So by the time that the twist ending happens and she gets dragged to hell, I feel nothing. I'm just like, yeah, take her. This is a stiff as a board female protagonist. Yeah, I want her to go. It's not that you actively want her to be punished and attacked, but you don't care. 
Yeah. Or at least I didn't care. And maybe that adds to the humour. Maybe that allows you to dissociate to the extent that you can just laugh at all of this. The dullness isn't even just limited to her. The dullness carries over to Clay. He says lines regarding their inevitable escape to the cabin to be together. He refers to that as, there's trees and it's private. We can just talk and stuff. Oh god, the dialogue is so uninspired in this film. And apparently they were working on this film before they got into the Spider-Man films. For a film that went through a number of years of development, you, you will be watching this thinking, this is the best dialogue they could write. And I get it. I get that horror dialogue is stilted. I get that the characters are kind of two-dimensional. But this two-dimensional? This stilted? It's too much. There is so much going on in this film that you just don't know. We've talked about a lot of the gross-out scenes of Sylvia Garnish or the body of Sylvia Garnish just puking onto Christine's character. And it's done for no reason besides just creating an uncomfortable feeling of dissociation. Yeah, you, you seriously get the feeling that most of the horror bits, most of the gross-out bits, were not done even to gross people out. They were done for laughs. I don't know. Like, if it's a comedy film, make it a comedy film. Don't get it in this halfway house. It's trying to be scary but isn't, because it just comes across as phony. And I literally feel nothing for the central characters. Their relationship from... is wooden. Their relationship is non-existent. I don't understand why they are still together. I don't believe she's capable of making the tough decisions. She looks like a child. Justin Long up in here looking like a self-satisfied chipmunk. I literally feel nothing for this Barbie doll. This is verbatim from my first time watching the film. My unfiltered reactions. There is no chemistry. They are not even depicted as being romantically involved. Also, the, <laughs> the stereotypical supernatural old lady character having her face transplanted through CGI onto a handkerchief is probably one of the silliest moments in film history for me, oh, honestly. Yeah. The flying handkerchief of doom was so beautiful to watch and it's just wonderful to experience again. I've, I've got a note here. Yes, beat up the old lady slash abuse. Um, all of these are, co all of my notes are, are like pointing out how funny this is. The teeth coming out of her mouth. Um, what in the mouth shuriken fuck? You know, there's a moment where she like, she literally sticks <laughs> up a, a knife or something. Oh, here we go. Wait, so a defining character moment for this blonde cardboard cutout is saying, I beat you, you old bitch. Class storytelling. Sorry, just going back to, um... What in the mouth shuriken fuck? <laughs> what in the mouth shuriken fuck? She literally goes, blah, and a thing comes out of her mouth at, at speed. By the thing, do you mean her dentures? Is it her teeth? I thought it was something else that she, like, like spat out at her. It could be that, it could be that. But at one point, she also spits out her dentures. This is within the first 30 to 40 minutes of the film, not even, of a 90-minute film. I have the note... A lesbianism without any teeth, what did she stick in her mouth? Because there's a scene of Sylvia Garnish literally mouth-kissing Christine without any teeth. And there's a massive pause after Christine says, old bitch. Like, she's in the car, we think that she's won the, the, the fight. And yeah, okay, I get make fun of the pause, but it's so uncomfortably long. I've got notes that uh, from early on I'm going, the script, dude, who is this actress? 
for Honestly, this film, the way it's been directed, the way the script has been written, it feels like an M. Night Shyamalan film. It feels like the Avatar, yes, the yes, last Airbender yes, film. Yes, like, yes, it feels like an M. Night Shyamalan film. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've got a note here saying, the music, girl, it's like the music from Harry Potter slash the Brothers Grimm. This film is so uneven in tone, it gives you whiplash within like a two seconds space. This Barbie believes in the supernatural now because of Sylvia Ganesh. I get that the cliches are part of it, but it's so cliched. And there are a lot of Rainyisms in here, her screaming face a lot. The Rainy car shows up more on that later. Which... A lot of creaky floorboards and stuff like that. It's just, yeah. yeah it's it's cliche central, and I understand. Cliche jump scares. Yeah. Loads of expositional dialogue. Unnecessary. Over the phone, on, in like... Voiceovers. So much. And just a note on that. Some of the scene changes are so choppy. You literally have either a fade from the one scene into the other scene, or Christine turning her head and her hair acting as the scene change. Honestly, honestly. You could do better things on a PowerPoint. Um, um, also, there is this beautiful scene where Christine is trying to amass whatever she owns in order to get it to the pawn shop, and she's in her garage, I guess, and she's visited again by the spirit of Sylvia Ganesh, and the spirit of Sylvia Ganesh pins her against a wall, tries to just punish her, and I think the spirit of Sylvia Ganesh actually puts her whole fist through Christine's mouth. Yes, she does. Trying to pull out... Her guts. Her guts. And then, within the same scene, within the same moment... An you see, anvil. You see Christine basically <laughs> thinking, I have an axe in my hand. I see a rope attached to an anvil like above the, Sylvia I could strike Sylvia herself. I'm not going to. Like the Roadrunner. Yes. I am going to snap the rope... <laughs> With an anvil. With an anvil that will fall on Ganesh's head and her eyes, cartoon style, will pop out of the skull. I get- Land on Christie's face. I get that it's a reference to cartoon violence, but also it just comes across as being so unneeded. Like, this film is the definition of, for the sake of just doing it. You try too hard. Speaking of trying too hard, the scene- with Sean Sandina, Ramjaz, Christine, and then Sean Sandina's assistant, where they try to summon the Lamia and they try to expose the Lamia away from Christine and her aura, I guess. And they have a goat to sacrifice. They actually make the goat speak. Yes, they do. And it's 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 needlessly funny. Like hilariously need funny. Needlessly funny is a good tagline for this film. She also says that she wants to burn the button. That's one of my favourite moments in the film. <laughs> She's like, can't I just burn it? And you're like, Christine, how do you burn a button? How do you burn a button? It's not a book. You can't, like, stuff it. I don't understand. It's, and it's, not, it's, it's made of plastic. It's clearly made of plastic. And yet the suggestion is, she, like, they're trying to put out there that it's made of wood. It's clearly made of plastic. This was so fun to go back to, and I'm glad I introduced you to it, but... The pace! Pace is all over the place. We take a little bit of a boost in the pace to get to, like, the the, the first mystic. Yeah. And, like, working out that it's the Lamia. Mm. She gets thrown into a wardrobe, scaring her into killing the cat. And then she goes, oh, okay, killed the cat, everything's fine. We then take the train to Snoozeville when we go to uh, the parents' house. Yes. The pace! It doesn't just slow down, it dies. 
And the, the dialogue proves it. The mother, Clay's mother and Christine bond over the fact that they had alcoholic parents. Honestly. Out of nowhere. Exposition. Back to the exposition. She eats chocolate ice cream in one of the most, like... Unlikely moments. Well, it's, it's unlikely, but it's also massively cliché. Completely. Um, my notes continuously saying who wrote this. Massively cliché. So when she sacrifices and kills her cat, Clay comes back and he spots a bit of, let's say, red paint on her coat. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't look like blood. And she just says, oh no, I was just cutting up tomatoes, you know? And I've just written down, this is the worst tomato alibi ever. Yeah, it's not good. Um, I've got a note that says plot convenience and confusion makes for a sad viewer. Yeah. One of the most chaotically written screenplays ever, which leads in to the scene close to the end. Yes. When she goes to the graveyard trying mm. to give the button back to Ganesh. And we're suddenly in a Tim Burton Batman film. Honestly, we're at the Wayne's grave, mama. It is gothic central. Uh, yeah, okay, 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 no. I think it's a combination of Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher. You uh, cannot yeah, okay. exclude it's, Joe it's, Schumacher. It's, it's Batman Forever. Like, it's it's not good. And the way she stuffs that envelope, which has the penny in it, has the coin, and doesn't actually have the button, also, just come to my mind, how can you not tell the difference between the weight of a singular button and the weight of a coin? Yeah, she, she, she's no. lost. No. Towards the end of the film, I was writing notes continuously saying, this needs to stop. When can this stop? Just it, kill her already. It was already. only five to ten minutes away from the end. Yeah, this is not a long film. Like, I, But I was writing notes like, she deserves to die, get it over with. And the end twist, come. you can see it coming a fucking mile away. Completely. Like, honestly, I'm... Mainly down to a stupid mistake where Christine fumbles with her bag and has a lot of stuff dropped from her bag in Clay's car and then... Oh no, there's so much paper strewn around the bottom of this car, I can't simply collect the envelope that I need. You didn't. If you're anything like me, by the end of this film, you are actively wanting it to end. Yeah. She is such a bad protagonist, and loads of the things that she does here, you will end up just disliking They're her. deplorable. If, if you're a normal human being, you will end up disliking her. Uh, quite apart from how badly she's written, she is just genuinely unlikable. You've mentioned that the writing really lets the film down, but do you think it's also down to the acting? Yeah, none of the acting in this film is particularly good, and that's quite a tame review. Actually. Yeesh. Oh, that is harsh. But actually, this is as good a time as any to move on to the next section, namely, giving our ratings of individual aspects of the film. Let's start with the acting. How did you find the acting? It's not good. That's a definite. Nope. Um, nope. Simply going with the vibe of the film and the fact that it's a stereotypical bunch of characters that have been not very well written. Yeah. I think that a couple of people are doing the best with the material that they've got. Yeah. I think that Lorna Raver turning up as Sylvia Ganesh, she's the highlight. Definitely. I think that Dilip Rao as Ram Jass, he's doing okay. Yeah. Um, Reggie Lee is hamming it up Completely. as this, this guy who's in competition with the main character. Yeah. Um, yeah, Lorna, Lorna Raver is doing well. Like, yeah. Given this stereotypical caricature to play, she's doing well. Everyone else is doing fine. Apart maybe from Bojana Novakovic, who is, you know, she turns up briefly and does a good job. Hamming it up. Everyone else is doing fine. And that's not good. So I think that the best, and I try to be positive, 
Um, after some of the things I've said here, you might be doubting that, but well, I do. I do try to be positive. We both try to be positive. I think that the best I can give the acting here is a five out of ten. I accept that. I accept that, and I genuinely accept all the things you said. But I believe that because we spent so long just following Christine, following Alison Lohman, and following Justin Long, who are cardboard cutouts of characters, not even real people, I cannot go beyond a three out of ten. With the acting? I mean, do we rank writing? I think writing does have to come into here. With, with this one, I think we should. Because, yeah. you know, my, my, my generosity it. to the actors is balanced by my complete lack of generosity yeah. to the Raimi brothers. Yeah. This is a badly written film. You know, considering how long they had to work on it. They needed an outside influence. It's, yeah. it's not good. Yeah. I would give the writing of Drag Me to Hell a 1 out of 10. Okay, so basically we've come to the same conclusion. Three out of ten altogether. <laughs> well, what would your ranking for the writing be? Oh, possibly a one or a zero. A zero? Can we even give zeros? Why not? Okay, so let's get back into the ones that we usually cover. Yeah, such as cinematography. You spoke a little bit about the scene changes and scene shifts being extremely clunky. I think within cinematography, we can take into consideration the time it took for the jump scares to happen. Mm. And you mentioned so much how they were so slow, painstakingly mm. slow, just telling you so obviously when they were going to happen so that you felt no fear, no emotion when they came around. And that just doesn't scream horror to me. That screams the complete opposite of horror. And I just have to give it 2 out of 10. It's not a very good looking film. I have to give them credit for using the techniques mm -hmm. and doing them relatively okay. Yeah. But it's it's not very well executed. I would say that it's a three out of ten in terms of cinematography. What about music? For me, the music is all over the place. We haven't gone into it that much, but it, it does a lot of kind of mirroring the action. True. And there's no subtlety to it. I like the music that's played at the beginning and end, the kind of fanfare music. I think that it's fun, and I think that it uh, hints at a kind of fairy tale, morality tale story. Christopher Young has definitely created a interesting score and an interesting soundtrack to this weird film. Yeah, it, it must have been difficult. And I understand the decision that he went with to kind of make it as simple as possible. However, the music doesn't add to any kind of scare factor. It actually helps with signposting a few of the jump scares before yeah. they happen. It really doesn't heighten emotions all that much either. No, it adds to a sense of boredom that encompasses the film. So I would have to give it a 3 out of 10. Okay, so I guess on this occasion we're actually switching positions because I gave the music a 5 out of 10. Okay. Because I actually enjoyed some of the pieces that were playing and in terms of signposting it really helped me decipher what was going to happen before it actually happened. Yeah, but I think we're coming down to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the themes covered, Mama just... Now, yeah, see, before we say anything, I did introduce the whole aspect of a morality tale, and we've been going along with that, so in that respect, I can't fault the film too much for attempting to show what a good ethical person should do in their day-to-day -day lives and what they should not do every single day of their lives. Yeah, if you happen to be a cardboard cutout of a bank loan manager, this is a dull morality tale set in the modern day. And 
I can't give it more than a 1 out of 10. Wow, okay. See, I think I've just been extra nice here because of the morality aspects, and I've just given it a 4 out of 10. It's like uh, my first horror, Join the Dots book. Yeah, yeah. And anything that I can say that about in terms of writing can only have a 1 out of 10. I will join the 1 out of 10 club on the next category, which is the one weird element you choose to dissect this movie on. And my weird element this time is the stereotypical portrayal of non-white characters which Raimi introduces within this film. All of these characters, whether that be Sean Sandina, whether that be Ram Jazz, Stu Rubin, or even the Lamia in a way, I guess, because you can't really call the Lamia a part of the status quo because of its nature as a demon, they all serve to assist, torture, or create problems for the main protagonist, but the white protagonist is seen to be either a victim or a hero in a very passive fashion, and I just hate that as a trope. I hate a lack of agency, so I just want to give the film on this respect, namely perpetuating stereotypes in the horror genre, a 1 out of 10. Okay, um, mm -hmm. I would agree. But that's not my weird element. My weird mm. element is a lot of the needless aspects of the film. <laughs> I get that filmmakers like to put in a lot of kind of their own in-jokes, and they like to do a lot of things for themselves and for the crew, as well as for the audience. Mm. Um, and a lot of them can be understood by the audience as well. Mm -hmm. um, the fly landing on the lens, uh, Raimi and his family members turning up as needless ghosts, there being all sorts of weird shit that doesn't need to be in there. Yeah. It's, it's not even ironically funny. It just turns up for no reason. There are so many weird and needless things in this film. I appreciate directors putting in in-jokes. So I'm not going to give it a 1 out of 10. I'm not even going to give it a 2 out of 10. I think that my thing here is that I appreciate in-jokes. I appreciate stuff that's put in that to other people is unnecessary. But when there's too many, mm. and the film is already a little bit alienating, it just adds to the sense of it being alienating. Yeah. So therefore, this gets a 3 out of 10. Very, very interesting that you say that 3 out of 10 because... <laughs> That is actually my overall ranking of this entire film. I think it's also mine. We've disagreed on the specifics, but I think that I would also go for a 3 out of 10 overall. Which, you know, is better than it could be, um, considering how damning I've been. But I think that the main damning aspect, and one of the reasons why I've been so... Um, negative about Negative about this film, is that I was just disappointed. You know, I wasn't expecting great, great things, but I was expecting at least a 5 out of 10. Yeah. And I didn't get it. But yeah, honestly, with regards to Drag Me to Hell and our overall rankings of 3 out of 10, in my mind, no amount of campy hilarity can salvage a piss-poor cinematic experience as this one. I think if I were to give a kind of witty, clever sentence to go with it, no one wants to walk away from any film feeling disappointed. True. Apparently that happened. I think that is the great enough description <laughs> and summary um, of yeah. the film as a whole. And yeah, I think... We're going to try and end on a high note with some of the trivia facts about this film. So hopefully you guys have stuck around until now and you're going to stick around for the next few minutes as well. Yep, just a few more of uh, your precious minutes to take from you. Um, but uh, an interesting fact for me, there are a lot of Raimiisms in this film. But one Raimiism that is not present is the seemingly ever familiar face of Bruce Campbell. He was in Evil Dead. Right. Was made famous uh, in a lot of ways by Sam Raimi's work. Mm. Um, he does not appear in this film. Interesting. He is not present. Um, and it's the first Raimi movie not to have Bruce Campbell in there. And speaking about actors and the inability of actors to 
commit to Drag Me to Hell. Supposedly, Elliot Page was meant to star as the protagonist. Right, well that would have been interesting. I'm not sure that it's a role that he would have enjoyed. No, no. Um, even at the time. And speaking of people who were originally intended mm. to be doing stuff, Edgar Wright was originally asked to direct this film. But oh, really? he was too busy uh, working on Hot Fuzz mm. and then Scott Pilgrim. I don't think that a script this thin on the ground could have been improved, even by Edgar Wright's uh, characteristic style. The fact that you say the script is so thin on the ground, it was almost done in the early 90s. Yeah, they... The script was written just after they released Army of Darkness, so around 1992. But the script just laid there, waiting for a post-Spider-Man era when Sam Raimi had more time, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, for it to have gone through a development process that long, I keep coming back to this point, it should be better. Yeah. Um, and the script itself is not entirely all that original. Yeah, I mean, what? <laughs> Supposedly, it's loosely based on a film from the 1950s called Night of Demon. And that in itself is also based on a short story called Casting the Runes by M.R. Jane. What? It's not even original? <laughs> Nothing these days is original, let's face it. Yeah, but this was, this was 2009. Things should be better. Supposedly, I believe Alison Lohman was so allergic to some of the aspects of the mud or the ground where they were doing the final shots of the final scene, they had to replace the actual dirt with specially created mud because of Alison Lohman's allergies. Yeah, that's true. Apparently, um, Lohman also did a lot of her own stunts, mainly because Sam Raimi wanted to get the authentic screaming face, both <laughs> from her and from... Lorna Raver. The maggots, the one practical effect that we thought was good. That's actually pasta. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think that we can kind of call our trivia to a close there. What we've done before, just before we end, is read some of our favourite quotes uh, yeah, out. Definitely. Um, yeah. So let's let's go for that. And then we will leave you in peace for another amount of time. I think this is a quote I have from the very beginning of the film. It's not the first interaction we see between Christine and Clay, where Clay says, you are cocky and sexy and unbelievable. <laughs> oh no, the old car of doom. <laughs> oh, with regards to that and the handkerchief, what did I write down? Wingardium Leviosa, hanky of doom. <laughs> yes, there is also a moment where Christine gets flung into a wardrobe by the Lamia, and the way I sort of formulated that in my notes was, thank you, Lamia, for playing Twister with this reject Rosamund Pike's body. I've got, yes, banish the man from the seeing table. I think that's in relation to the first time they go to see the mystic. I believe Clay's mother says to Christine during their visit at their home, you've got backbone. Uh, no, not the kitty. No, don't sacrifice the kitten. Here, kitty, 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 stab it. Depression step sets in immediately. And tomato juices. Uh, the actors are shit and so punchable. One of the most chaotic screenplays ever. I think those are some valid notes to end on. Uh, I'm just seeing if, if there's... Um, here we go. Well, at least the Lamia was kind enough to save her from being run over by a train. Yeah, you know... Alamia really, really, really does care about people not having their journeys delayed by someone on the track. Yeah, the Lamia is is not happy with um with anything that disrupts 
the already out of whack American train system. Or with Christine. The Lamy is just not happy with Christine. Oh, no one's happy with Christine. So, I think we'll round things off there. Yeah, thank you for listening to our rambling rants <laughs> on Drag Me to Hell. They know that they're coming here for rambling rants. They, they hopefully enjoy the rambling rants. And hopefully you enjoy the Instagram content. Yes, but remember, if you have any comments that you would like to share with us, you can get in touch with us over email, on Instagram, uh, direct message us, or send us an email. And the email is... reencounterspodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Um, Beautiful. So, yeah, get in contact with us if you have any comments you'd like to share. Whether you loved it, you hated it, you completely disagree with us about Drag Me to Hell, which is your favourite film ever. Um, um, share with us if, you know, you knew about this film before, or if it's just coming into your vision now because of us. That would be lovely to hear, seeing as the previous films which we have discussed were relatively famous. And I guess this, based on the critical reviews and critical acclaim that it received, could be seen as widely famous, but... Mm. Yeah. If, like us, you come across it most often when uh, typing in Drag Race at the top of particular streaming websites, yeah. then let us know that as well. <laughs> and yeah, um, I've been Sam. And I was Boris. Still am. And will be the next time we meet on another episode of Re-Encounters. Re